Good evening. Welcome to another episode of The Jackman Show. My name is Paul Prescott. I'm here with my co-host, Ariella Thornhill. Um, we have a really great show today. We have some great segments. We have a really special guest. We're going to be having um, Richard Hooker, who is a general secretary of Teamsters Local 623 here in Philadelphia. Um, so make sure you stick around for that and make sure you're hitting like and subscribe. Um, so how are you, Ariella? I'm good. I'm glad we get to do a show together. Yeah, I know. It's been, what, like two months since, since the first <laughs> show, right? Yeah. Um, well, I thought maybe we could talk about something in the news. Um, as you all know, the Green New Deal failed. Um, we've seen it fail in action in Texas. Um, the power outages across the state have been uh, making news, and um, the right wing has not failed to jump on the uh, train of blaming this on the Green New Deal, blaming this on solar and wind energy. Uh, I, I've seen th some of these memes on Facebook. I don't care if you can throw that up. Um, fossil mm -hmm. fuels, they don't care if the sun is out, Ariella. Um, look at these snow-covered solar panels and this frozen wind turbine. Uh, that must be what is uh, going on there. That's what did it. Right. So there couldn't my, be any other explanation. Right. And by the way, this is why I stay friends with some right-wingers on Facebook, because I just need to mm -hmm. see what they're saying. <laughs> but um, in fact, I mean, to break this down, so... Uh, of the 34 gigawatts that went offline, uh, 26 of them came from natural gas and coal sources. So natural gas and coal was failing actually much more than the wind and solar. And there is a reason for this. Um, you can throw up the other graphic. Um, so the, the grid in Texas, uh, they are, as you see, totally isolated from the rest of the national grid. Uh, this was a deliberate decision. Um, this was done deliberately to avoid federal regulation and maintain a privately controlled profit-making utility system. And then if you can throw up the other graph, uh, surprise, surprise, look at where all the power outages are um, concentrated. Um, so that really is what is has been going on here. This is a failure of a privatized uh, utility system. Um, it simply was not profitable to build the kind of infrastructure that would have prevented this. Um, and, you know, every dollar that's going to a shareholder or a CEO is not going to building up the infrastructure that would have prevented this. Um, so turns out there is actually is a is another explanation, Ariella. Yeah, it wasn't just the Green New Dream failing. <laughs> right. The thing that's crazy, too, is, you know, these kinds of storms have gotten more and more common particularly in Texas, really severe storms that are life-threatening. I think at the moment, um, 31 people have died from storm-related incidents. And to use it as this kind of shameless way to single out renewable energy sources when global warming is a driving force behind the severity of these storms, mm -hmm. it's just so cynical and shameful. Right. And just stupid. I mean, think about the Nordic countries and uh, places like Alaska and Canada that use um, wind energy and solar energy, and it works fine. Um, clearly, no, it doesn't. You're being oh, lied right. to. <laughs> it, it's a socialist hellhole. You're right. And um, it, free, it kills birds, too, or something. Or the other. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's um, too noisy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and you know, and but this is something that we... The left like needs to capitalize on this in terms of infrastructure, like Trump's mm -hmm. great failure to me was like failure to pass an infrastructure bill when they had control of Congress. Um, and like we should be pointing out, like not only would the Green New Deal uh, be creating infrastructure jobs, but even like expanding what we have. So like if we were mm -hmm. to um, build large scale energy storage systems, which would prevent 
uh, problems like this, that's a lot of uh, union jobs for trades like steel workers, pipe fitters, all kinds of building trades um, could be utilized to prevent this this kind of thing from happening. Yeah, and to stop people from having to shoulder the risk of of the shift to deregulation and privatization, because it makes people in general feel faithless and demoralized in their government writ large. So you have desperate people who are like lighting gas stoves to try to get heat. Homes in that area aren't made for storms like this, so they're not very efficient at keeping the heat in. These are incredibly dangerous um, ways to try to manage this circumstance on your own. And, you know, lawmakers are saying, well, you should. You didn't prepare enough. Where's your, you know, gallon or two of water and canned food? It's despicable. Right. And I don't know if we have the tweet, but the mayor of uh, what was it? Colorado, was Texas. The governor. <laughs> yeah, the governor. Yeah, yeah the um, mayor of Colorado, Texas. Yeah, yeah, just had this, I mean, complete meltdown and was just like, you know, you you all should deal with this. If you don't have energy, that's that's your fault. If you don't have electricity, mm -hmm. you know, you expect handouts. What do you expect the government to yeah. do? Provide you with lights? Uh, electricity is a handout. It's not something that we pay for as a utility. <laughs> right. You know, whatever happened to the uh, the pioneering spirit of Ben Franklin? You know, there was a right. man that did it's not a rely. Storm. Right. Put a kite out there. Right. Yeah, it's it's absurd too because the way forward is not um it's not grim. It's like you said, it's a job creation um platform for the entire United States. And it could apply to retrofitting homes to be more energy efficient, even mm -hmm. um increasing like the value of your property. It's not just about let's pour all of our money into solar and right. wind. But the refusal to even acknowledge that this failure was preventable and is the result of privatization and neoliberal policies, and then, you know, make the absurd claim, like you said, that, you know, the turbines are freezing over. Right. <laughs> and that's what did it. When they were warned of this, I think they were forewarned several, like four or five years in advance that mm -hmm. this shift would be potentially catastrophic for the people of Texas. Right. And, you know, what I am have seen a little bit for some liberal outlets, they'll point out that, you know, it's not just solar and wind that are failing, but they're not going the extra step of saying what is unique about Texas. They're the one thing that's off the national grid that is most privatized. Um, mm -hmm. So that point really needs to be emphasized. Yeah. And El Paso is still part of it. Like you saw that map, the little right. corner of Texas is missing from that. Those parts are fine because there's actually energy backups there that are linked to the national grid. So they have some uh, way of remediating the situation. Whereas these other areas are just being told God knows what. I mean, the other thing is FEMA is going around with generators trying to help people set them up but municipalities aren't prepared to remove the snow or help people manage the crisis. It's yeah. And it's unnecessary. Yeah. In conclusion, austerity, bad green new deal. Good. Uh, it turns <laughs> out. Um, but I'm uh, excited to uh, get to our segments and to our guests. So um, do you want to what, what what do you have on your mind today? Yeah, I've got a different side of tech. <laughs> we could call this a, a, another tremendous failure of the tech world or uh, another dystopian neoliberal hellscape that 
we're all being subject to, I want to talk about workplace surveillance. And part of why I wanted to talk about that is because when our guest comes on, you know, he works in an industry that is heavily surveyed and um, we're seeing workers striking in shops that are heavily surveyed, which I'll get to later. And it's a new frontier for unions to fight big tech in the workplace. So I wanted to get into some of the ways that they've entered. Um, And workplace surveillance is nothing new. You know, you punch your card, you know, maybe somebody's watching you, maybe there's cameras, but now that big tech has entered the arena, they're using even more sophisticated mechanisms to track workers. And workers are up against multi-million dollar technologies that are designed to track not just their every move, but their mood and their motivations in the workplace. Companies have started to use AI to monitor PPE during coronavirus, like Amazon's recognition workplace safety software. And if you scroll down, you can, you know, try it out for yourself. Uh, But what it does is it scans people's faces, it scans the workplace, and it logs who's using what, how they're moving, if they're getting close together. It's a grim potential future where safety is used to spirit in these anti-worker measures that violate people's privacy. Um, AI is also being used to recruit new employees and help conduct interviews. So if you need a job, a robot might be screening you for hiring. And what they do is not just ask you about your qualifications, but they look at your facial expressions as you're being interviewed. They correlate this information to other consumer data that's available through social media. Um, So they're getting a fuller picture of the people that they are interviewing. And they're also um, monitoring micro expressions for ways to analyze potential risk of, of bringing somebody on. Facial recognition software is also being used to track attendance and workplace performance. According to this article from Lexology, the remote work during COVID has accelerated this process. Um, It says, quote, the use of facial recognition technology in monitoring employee productivity has accelerated in 2020. As COVID-19 imposed home working arrangements on many businesses, employers have looked for ways to maintain oversight over their workforce remotely. One increasingly common monitoring solution grants the employer access to an employee's camera and uses FRT to monitor when the employee is present. We have seen a particular growth in this type of solution during lockdown, perhaps reflective of the common concerns employers cite regarding remote working arrangements. So if you're a remote worker, your employer could be asking to tap into your camera and watch as your eyes scroll from one tedious Zoom meeting to the next to make sure you're really engaged. It's also used to identify toxic workplace culture like this enterprise risk evaluation service from the AI company Receptivity. Uh, Receptivity, I hope I'm saying that right, (laughs) or maybe I don't, enables corporate risk functions and risk management technology providers to gain a real-time view of changes in workforce psychology and emerging outlier groups whose trending psychological state puts them at risk of behavior that is at odds with company norms. 
So I guess you can use this to monitor whether or not your employees' trending psychological states make them persona non grata in the workplace and intervene early. And of course, big tech has entered the union busting game. Amazon is a standout company in using big tech solutions to crush worker power. Like when Whole Foods created a heat map showing which shops were likely to organize based on data about each branch. One of the most distressing parts of this map was that it showed that shops with high rates of worker diversity were less likely to unionize, and it identified shops in low-income neighborhoods with a low-income workforce as being more likely, particularly if they were less diverse. It would be nice if the left could get its hands on it, because then we'd have a cheat sheet <laughs> for where we need to go to try to organize. Um, Amazon also tried to get workers to use company software to hold a union vote. And then there's Google. The employees at Google were concerned about the company using internal browser extensions to monitor employees' attempts to organize, although Google denies that this was the intent of the feature. The feature essentially tracked when workers would hold meetings more than 10 and would alert management that these meetings were happening. Google maintains that it was to prevent uh, its employees from getting spammed with meeting invites to useless meetings of many employee employees, but their employees felt differently. A lot of workers have legitimate concerns about tech in the workplace, and unions have successfully pushed for employees to be trained if jobs are automated or if new technologies are introduced into their workflow. But with surveillance Prog sorry, with tech surveillance and AI surveillance, progress is slow going, even as it becomes more ubiquitous and sophisticated. According to this report by the Trades Union Congress, which is based in the UK, over half of workers think it's likely they're being monitored at work. Workplace monitoring is more likely to be happening to younger workers and employees in large companies. Two-thirds of workers are concerned that workplace surveillance could be used in a discriminatory way if left unregulated, and 70% think that surveillance is likely to become more common in the future. The report recommends that trade unions be given the right to negotiate over workplace surveillance measures, and with the introduction of privacy laws in the EU, this may change things for workers in the UK, despite Brexit. But in the US, these laws vary state by state and offer very little protection for workers and few bargaining rights for unions. Some states are considering passing privacy laws that would limit surveillance, but these only apply to public places, not private companies. Workers' rights to privacy are not part of these measures and unions have stepped up to fight for them. The Teamsters national contract already has the right to negotiate over new technology. And now the TDU is turning their attention to increased surveillance measures. For instance, Teamsters are having to fight to not have cameras installed in their cars as safety measures, while those same rank and file members are having to fight to have PPE as a legitimate safety measure. Teamsters have already fought against management using surveillance data to justify firings, but the company found a way around that. Quote, the Teamsters, the union that represents UPS employees, 
one contract language that says drivers can't be fired based solely on the numbers in their telematics reports. Telematics is a system that's used to survey workers and send real-time data to supervisors. But supervisors have found workarounds and telematics-related firings have become routine. As surveillance tech becomes cheaper and more integrated with the AI, no doubt sophisticated workplace surveillance will become more commonplace and union and non-union workers have a long fight ahead. But to know where to start, we can look to successful campaigns from the past where unions fought for workers' privacy and won. Do you get surveyed in the workplace, Paul? You're <laughs> muted, but <laughs> uh, I was gonna say I'm just—it's just your uh, remote teaching, right? I—I'm sure I am. I just don't know about it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was, while I was muted, I was just saying. I mean, it's just—it's scary, and you know, like you said, there's nothing new about this. Um, you know, there's always been workplace surveillance. Even you know, you can go back to like the 1890s, mm-hmm. but it's just on a new level now. Um, and you know, they've always had ways of like trying to weed out uh, so-called troublemakers and union organizers, but, you know, they just have so many more tools at their disposal to do it. Um, you know, and it feels like what's so eerie about now is like, you know, COVID is kind of like there's there's before COVID and after COVID, you know, it, mm-hmm. we know things are going to be different, but um, we don't quite know exactly how and how dramatic the difference is going to be. And yeah, I mean, this the the surveillance stuff is just scary. Yeah, and a lot of it is, you know, justified now, at least the pr- the provisions that they're creating, they're saying, oh, this is for safety, we need to monitor you to make sure you, you're using PPE. And most of the time, you know, these employees are not aware of everything that's even going into this kind of tech. Right. So it's being sold to them as one thing, and it's kind of a Trojan horse to create even more surveillance. And then with AI saying, oh, we can detect if you're creating a hostile workplace or... Right, um, aka uh, organizing <laughs> a union. Toxic yeah. culture. Unions are very yeah, toxic. Exactly. Extremely toxic. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, you know, one of the the rights that unions have is to appeal um, the way that management is disciplining employees. And if you're using AI to do that, it's going to create a really weird frontier, to be honest, to say, well, the AI detected, you know, that in this cluster of workers, there was a person uh, who was being disruptive. How do you address that? Right. I can just um, imagine a union management uh, meeting and you got Dave from 2001 A Space Odyssey or or <laughs> what, what was the uh, the robot's name? Yeah, exactly. How? How? Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> there can only be a result of human error. And what does the union rep say? What does the union rep say to how? We've got to find a way for unions to fight how. I also <laughs> think, you know, unions are going to be the place that we look for for non-union workers who are heavily surveyed and whose work right. is often becoming more automated. <laughs> and who don't necessarily have that right that unions have fought for to be either trained in the new technology and integrated into new business plans with it. And so we've got these kind of two branches of tech in the workplace that are going to be a big fight, I think. Yeah, for sure. Now let's um, go to your <laughs> to your right. segment because yours has a very low tech. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, there is a low, low tech, tech component. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I mean, to switch gears, uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, the school reopening fight. And so as a public school teacher, the fight over a safe school reopening during COVID-19 has deeply touched my life, the lives of my fellow union members, and the lives of the students I teach. And this fight has dragged on, and despite all the lives lost from the virus and the fact that it's still not under control, teachers are still fighting for the right to do their jobs without putting themselves, their families, and their students at risk. And in this battle, politicians and school district leaders have used the classic divide and conquer strategy to pit public workers against the rest of the population. And in this situation, political elites have material to work with, and it makes sense why the public would be frustrated with their children not going into schools. Teachers get it, and we feel the pain. Virtual school is just not the same, and there is nothing that can replace quality in-person instruction. No sane teacher would try to deny that. And of course, this is also causing a crisis of childcare for many working people. But nothing about this pandemic is ideal and forcing schools to open before the pandemic is under control. And when many districts don't have the proper resources in order to do so safely, it's just making a bad situation much worse. And before Trump left office, Democrats claimed to be against the push for schools to reopen and use that issue to beat up on Republicans. But with Biden's election, all of a sudden there is a growing bipartisan consensus around pushing schools to go back in person. This is a life and death struggle for teachers. School districts have been sacrificing funding and resources for years. And now many teachers are saying they're not willing to sacrifice their lives for incoherent and unsafe reopening plans. I'm going to focus on how this fight is playing out in two districts, uh, Chicago and my own district of Philadelphia. But this is, of course, a national fight going on in every city and state across the country. So for the last decade, the Chicago Teachers Union has often been a uh, trailblazer and set the path for teachers unions across the country. Starting under the leadership of Karen Lewis, who sadly passed away recently, they went to battle and struck against former Mayor Rahm Emanuel and current Mayor Lori Lightfoot for more school funding and strong contracts. Now they've taken that spirit to fight for safe reopening of schools. The plan in Chicago, which has been mimicked in many places, calls for a phased-in reopening that creates division between staff that have to go in first and those that do not. So let's listen to some response um, CTU officials had to the mayor's recent plan to reopen schools. The Chicago Teachers Union responded to the city's decision to push forward with the reopening in their own press conference. The level of care that comes from the people who run this this system. It really sucks. I'm trying not to be emotional. My six-year-old nephew was the first person in my family to contract COVID. I've had four other family members since him, with two of them right now in ICU. I mean, I appreciate doctors saying that kids need to be in school. I, my own kids need to be in school. Um, I, I take the point. Um, I would say to the doctors, they don't necessarily know what conditions are like in CPS buildings. There's a, there's a long history where we're told things will happen that don't happen. One of the things music teacher Quentin Washington wants to see at his school is mandatory testing. We need to have like professional sports type of testing where we're being tested regularly. And CPS's current policy is, is voluntary for staff. 
but that's not adequate. Quentin is also worried that splitting classrooms in person and virtual will be even more detrimental than a fully remote system, especially for diverse learners. That's unfair to the people that are on remote learning. We heard from parents who had similar concerns and chose to keep their students at home and others who were looking forward to their kids' return. So what CTU President Jesse Sharkey said strikes a chord with anyone who has taught in a school district like Chicago. Political elites and scientists do not understand the reality of what conditions are like in these schools and how these conditions make it virtually impossible to follow the reopening guidelines the science suggests. So in response to the push for reopening, teachers in Chicago took action to demonstrate that they do want to do their jobs, but only safely by teaching outside their schools. CTU and some of its supporters getting ready for a news conference to talk about their day. But what you're looking at here behind me is a playground that turned into a classroom setting for some of the teachers today who set up outside here at Bertano Math and Science Academy, a statement of defiance against the CPS return to the classroom order that the teachers say is based on health and safety concerns. It's chilly, but the parents are incredibly supportive. With temperatures hovering below freezing today, some teachers at Brentano Elementary bundled up and set up tables and computers outside so they could still teach virtually without going into their classrooms. I don't, I don't want to catch this disease. I don't want to bring this disease home to my family. I have elderly parents that live with me. Um, I don't want my students to catch this disease. As the teacher said, despite the propaganda, many parents are on the side of the teachers and understand that they are fighting for them as well and have a similar lack of trust in the district's ability to follow through on actual safe protocols. And as a result of their organizing, teachers in Chicago want a much more comprehensive, but still not perfect reopening plan. Uh, Labor Notes reported on the reopening plan saying, the CTU agreement increases vaccine access for educators who are required to enter buildings, delays the return to buildings for some, and establishes union-dominated building safety committees. It also guarantees ADA accommodations for educators who are the primary caregivers to individuals especially vulnerable to COVID, and establishes metrics for what would prompt the district to close school buildings or go fully remote again. And in Philadelphia, my union, the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, has become deeply embroiled in this same fight. In the summer and the fall, the Philadelphia School District tried to force students and teachers back and failed both times because of overwhelming public opposition. No one in Philly will soon forget the record six-hour-long school board meeting with over 150 community members in a row speaking against their plan. In January, the district started to make noise about reopening again. Surely this time they would come up with a foolproof plan, a solid plan, a plan no one could poke holes in or protest to. Surely they wouldn't embarrass themselves their third time trying to force us back. Let's look at what they came up with. Philadelphia School District is defending its use of window ventilation fans in school buildings as part of its COVID safety plan. The district released this video of the installation process. Pre-K through second grade students will begin to return to in-person learning February 22nd. Some parents and teachers complain the ventilation strategy is insufficient. The school district disagrees. This is an additional layer of safety. So on top of all the other measures that were taking place upon the recommendation of the CDC, the Philadelphia Department of Public Health, other uh, public health experts, you know, this is just one other way to ensure that the rooms um, are safe for our students and staff to return. Window fans are recommended as part of the CDC's mitigation guidelines. 
That's it, folks. A fan. You know, just blow that COVID air around a little and everything will be fine. That's how it works. And it's so much worse when you consider the fact that many of our schools have had serious ventilation issues for years, which have failed to be addressed. Also, Philly teachers have still not received the vaccine, and we aren't slated to start until at least March. So let's listen to some of some members of my union and Philly public school parents talk about how they feel about this reopening plan. The fans are are a really bad solution because, as you can see, they're exposed to the outside, which means they will they could be rained on. But these are residential grade pieces of equipment, not commercial grade. And from the manufacturer, they they're not supposed to be out in the rain. So they shouldn't even be run in rainy or snowy conditions. That's not concrete enough for me to feel comfortable to first myself enter a building. But on top of that, my son enter a building. He's asthmatic. When I go back to school, he's in fourth grade, so he'll still be virtual learning. But I am into buildings, and my mother, who is immunocompromised, will be watching him. Isaiah, how do you feel about going back to school? Well, not that good, because nobody should be um, getting sick, and I feel that every time somebody gets sick, there's going to be more cases. And I think every time somebody gets sick, it spreads. In a district like ours, it makes no sense for us to have aging air systems in our buildings. All these buildings should be modernized and up to code. It makes me feel like we're forgotten. There is no working functional uh, ventilation system. And that's a big concern for students and staff when we don't have a system to take care of ventilation. I had put my son back on the list to go, but being as though we have no ventilation reports and the school district is not being consistent and not getting back to me, I feel as if it's not safe at this time for the children nor the staff or teachers at this point. I'm very uncomfortable with sending my children back to school due to the conditions of the school in terms of, you know, with the with the current COVID conditions and the plan that the, the district has came up with. I mean, when you talk about sending our children back to school, you have to take into consideration the, the health and safety of our children, which, is our, which are our most prized possessions, as well as the health and safety of our, our staff at the schools who are there to educate our children. Kindergarten through second grade teachers were ordered to report last Monday, but our union refused to go in and we held pickets at schools across the district instead. If there was any good that came out of this, it created a sense of solidarity in my union that hasn't been there for a while. And on Monday, many teachers walked their first picket line or did their first union action. While the district was threatening the disciplined teachers who didn't show up, our organizing forced the mayor of Philadelphia to intervene. And all last week and this week, teachers have remained all virtual and no one has been disciplined. But just imagine if instead of spending all their time and energy trying to force us back with a half-assed plan, the district spent time figuring out how to make virtual learning as good as possible, how to support teachers and families as much as possible in this process. Or what if they use the time we were out of the school buildings to renovate them and fix the ventilation issue? All these ideas were put forward by a union, but ignored by the district. Many people are now citing the CDC's recent school reopening guidelines as evidence that it's safe to go back. The problem is these CDC guidelines still do not take into account the realities many urban and rural school districts face. While the general CDC guidelines, even for the outdoors, is six-foot social distancing, it says it's somehow not required for schools. When pressed about this, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky admitted it was left out because most schools don't actually have the space to do this. 
There also isn't much guidance on uh, teacher vaccinations. And this op-ed from the Washington Points, Post points out, um, says the guidelines do not require that teachers are offered vaccinations before they re return to the classroom. While many states have included teachers in priority groups, others have not. If the CDC included teacher vaccinations in their guidance, it could compel recalcitrant governors to move teachers to the front of the line. Simply put, after years of austerity, many school districts don't have the resources to implement a safe reopening. And let's not forget that COVID-19 is still not under control. New variants have emerged in places like Brazil and South Africa that will likely be in the United States soon, and it's unclear how much trouble it could cause. A recent article in the Atlantic uh, outlines this, saying that the mutations that help the virus spread and evade immune responses have arisen independently in multiple places. Combined with waning immunity, these factors underscore the challenge before the world. Populations may still be vulnerable to disaster scenarios just when things seem to be getting better. It's not yet known how many of the people currently affected in Manaus, Brazil, have previously recovered from COVID-19. Early data suggests that the P1 variant is now dominant in the city, but this does not mean the variant will take over everywhere. Each place and population is unique, and susceptibility will vary based on which variants have already spread. Still, the virus's capacity to cause such a deadly second surge in Brazil suggests a dangerous evolutionary potential. Throughout the school reopening fight, um, a common narrative that I'm going to call the bleeding heart narrative has been used. People will say these poor kids, especially black and brown kids, are falling behind. The education gap is widening. They'll never catch up. And here's my problem with this. Take Philadelphia as an example. For years and years and years, the teachers union and other activists have been sounding the alarm about the state of our schools and the need for more funding and resources. I've talked on this show before about our school buildings infested with mold, lead, asbestos, and rodents, the roofs that leak and cave in, the classrooms packed with 40 students in them, the lack of nurses that has led to students dying in school, and on and on. Students in high poverty districts have been falling behind for decades because of these structural inequalities and political leaders of both parties have ignored it, and if anything, demonized teachers' unions for raising these concerns. Now, all of a sudden, they are so concerned about students falling behind for one year that they wanna shove us back into a class for about two months. I don't buy it, because if they felt this way, they would have brought that sense of urgency to fighting for public education over the last few decades. If you are really concerned about students falling behind, then after the pandemic, these same people pushing for re reopening need to call for massive taxes on the wealthiest individuals and corporations in every state to fund our schools. And again, I'm not trying to not deny that online school is far from ideal, but also many students are in fact still learning during virtual school and many teachers are doing the best they can to make it all work. I know science teachers who have used their own money to ship lab equipment to their students. If you take a tour of the virtual classes at my school, or look at the work being submitted online, you'd have a hard time saying that no learning is taking place. And if you're thinking that it's ridiculous for districts to push so hard for a month or two of in-person learning, then you're right. This is about more than what it seems. This is about exerting power over the workforce and setting the stage and testing the limits for future battles with teachers unions. In a New York Times interview, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot revealed the true stakes saying about the CTU. When you have unions that have other aspirations beyond being a union and maybe being something akin to a political party, then there's always going to be conflict. I think ultimately they like to take over not only Chicago public schools, but take over running the city government. I know, God forbid, public school workers have power in the district that they work in and the city that they live in. And just like so many 
areas of society. The pandemic has exposed the deep inequalities in our education system. We need to safely get through this pandemic and then shift power and resources to address these inequalities, not force schools to open in order to hide them. And Ariella, um, this is just one more example that highlights how important unions are as a critical lifeline for worker health and safety. You know, without teachers unions, we'd all be forced back without question and um, it would be a disaster. And during this period, you know, I, so many times I've just thought about how thankful I am to be in a union, um, to have this kind of protection that extends, you know, it's, it's much, it's about much more than just wages and benefits, like your literal physical and, and you know, mental well-being is dealt with um, from the union. Yeah, and this kind of cynical line of like, oh, the teachers unions don't care about the kids. I've been seeing stories about mental health crises with kids, um, increases in suicides. That's a serious, serious issue. But it's always a serious issue, right? It's not because right. teachers unions are standing up and saying this school is not safe for what you want us to be doing. It's because schools become a hub of so many types of social services and continue to be underfunded and teachers unions continue to be under attack. So they're denied resources and it creates these endemic issues. And when the teachers union stands up for it, you know, no matter what it, no matter what they say, local government's always going to be like, no, you're wrong. If they say, give right. us more nurses, give us more social workers. We care about our kids' mental health. No, we can't do that. The, right. you know, other subjects think, will right. suffer. And again, mental health, like you said, it's been an issue for years. And guess what? Many uh, schools, the counselors are responsible for 400 caseloads. Yeah. So if you really care, you know, after this pandemic, we would, you know, be creating the funding to lower those caseloads. Um, yeah. But, you know, again, this is, I think, setting the stage for what's coming. And actually in Philadelphia, our contract expires in August, and that's going to be a fight. And I think this was about testing the limits. And I, I've been mm -hmm. encouraged about how our union's been responding. I think people, you know, sometimes the best organizer is a bad boss and it kind of has whipped people, you know, into, into organizing their building and they might not have done before. Yeah, sometimes the best organizer is a window fan. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, that's all you get. Right. That is unbelievable to me too, unbelievable. Yeah. It's winter. Don't even, don't even get me started, yeah. Um, it's like, do you live in Philly? When that woman was describing, oh, it's part of CDC guidelines. Where's your window fan, ma'am? You're being right. interviewed. And the whole where's idea your is window fan? supposed to like blow it out. Like what it what that would do is just blow it all around the room. It's yeah, it's absurd. The these yeah. are conditions that nobody would accept if it was happening to them. Right. They simply would not accept that. They would not accept being told in their own job. I'm sure that these city officials are working remote. Mm -hmm. So. Right. Yeah, the absurdity of it is unbelievable. And I think you're absolutely right. It's it's part of the long war, you know, against teachers unions. Right. Well, um, I'm excited, hopefully, to move on to better news. But um, I'm excited to bring on our guest. Um, this is a really special guest to me. Uh, we have with us today or tonight, Richard Hooker. He is a general secretary of Teamsters Local 623 the best union leader on this side or the other side of Mississippi, <laughs> as he likes to say. Um, I've known, got to know him over these last few years. We do a lot of work in Philly together, trying to build a labor movement, build all kinds of, um, you know, build, build any kind of movement that's that's going on. So uh, welcome, Richard. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Um, and I thought I would start. I saw you're you're in Alabama now, right? Oh, yes, sir. And you're I'm checking on out. Vacation. Right. There's also beautiful how- snowy Alabama. I, right. I, I can't. I, I still can't believe it. <laughs> and I don't know if you went there. Also, I don't know if you've been checking out the Amazon stuff. If that oh, was yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know. So I mean, tell me what you saw, what you've been seeing regarding yeah. Amazon. You know, a lot of a lot of people here are, you know, they're excited, they're anxious um, because this is something, you know, brand new. You're talking about going up against a company who's just anti-union through and through. Um, I heard some of the stories before I got here about how Amazon had the traffic lights, you know, stuck on green. So no one can stop and talk or get literature about what's going on. And lo and behold, there's no stopping. They got cops out there. Lights are green. You just keep keep moving. But, you know, uh, there is a um, radio campaign here where, you know, the, the, some of the, the local radio stations, they promote the union and they're telling the people that work out there, hey, vote union, yes. And they're telling them when, when they get their ballot, send it right back in the mail and, and vote. And so, and that's what it's going to come down to. It's going to come down to those workers voting. Mm-hmm. That's just like anything else. It comes down to voting. All right. And also, I saw um, you you visited some like uh, like civil rights uh, memorials, museums. I don't know if we want to talk about that. I saw you at the Montgomery bus boycott. Man, you know, it it we always hear that civil rights and workers' rights are the same. And to be here, to have some some sort of experience with that, you can actually see, you know, why that is a correlation between the two civil rights and workers' rights. You know, walking across that bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, man, I'm going to tell you something, man. That was emotional because you, you you read about it. You saw movies about it. You know, people walking because they just wanted the opportunity to vote. They wanted respect. They wanted the, the dignity of human personality. They, they wanted all those things. And they were willing to sacrifice their own lives just to get that. And here we are now. We're, we're still fighting the same thing. You know, it's it's a little it's a little different, but we're still fighting the same thing. And then here, you know, we went to Montgomery yesterday and, you know, it just brought to my mind. Just imagine if working people were to pull their resources like they did for that that bus boycott. They walked, they carpooled, hot, you know, raining, whatever the case may be, they would not get on that bus. And it wasn't just about because of you didn't want to sit in the back. It was about respect. And if what what if working people would do something like that? What if we say, you know what, I'm tired of the company dominating me. I'm tired of my union leaders not sticking up for me. You know what? I've had enough. Let's work together and, and get out of this situation. I'm telling you, that would be something. That would really be something. Yeah. I think, I think it's going to happen soon. Um, it has to. It has right. to. Paul, it, 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 man, listen, it has to. Yeah. Um, well, let's start maybe some questions about your background. You know, I think our viewers might be just interested to know, you know, just like your path to the labor movement and through the labor movement. So let's start, you know, where are you from and um, your family background? Did you have any influences in your family that led you down the path of the labor movement or that was kind of an independent thing? Well, I'm from the, the, the greatest state <laughs> in the world. You see, you see, you see the shirt. Uh, mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm, okay. I'm from I'm from North Carolina, born and raised there. Um, you know, I come from uh, 
church background. My father, he was a he's a pastor, a preacher, also military background. He was in the military for about 21 years. Um, so my background is not labor, but it is about helping people. Um, going to church, you know, day after day, we talk about helping people, bringing people in, showing them a better way of life, you know, uh, working in the community. And by him being my father, being in the military, there was also discipline, structure, um, also sacrifice. You know, he, he you know, uh, worked for, he was in the army. And so he gave his life, you know, his career, I should say, for America. And so you're talking about leadership, caring more about people than you care about yourself, wanting more for people. So that's where I kind of got that from. Um, it just so happened that, you know, I started working at UPS and uh, didn't know anything about unions, you know, because mm -hmm. coming from the South, you know, it's a right to work state in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So there was no talk about unions. They, they didn't teach in high school. There was nobody in my family that was in a union. And so when I came up north, um, that's when I got introduced to union. Didn't know anything about it. You know, I, you know, as a part timer, you know, I just wondered, you know, what was the benefits of being in a union? Because no one ever talked to me about it. But then there was um, one of my coworkers who guided me, took me under her wing. We used to, we used to work together in, in, in uh, loading and unloading trucks. So I learned more about it. So my seventh year um, working at UPS, I became a shop steward. And uh, up until around uh, 2013, I was comfortable just being a shop steward, you know, just handling the, the business of what was going on in the shop, just making sure the company did what it was supposed to do by the contract, making sure our members were protected. But um, 2013, uh, we had, it was just a bad, bad year as far as UPSers are concerned in the union, you know, so it was a contract and it was also our locals um, officers election. And so by me being a shop steward, you know, I advocated very, very hard for our previous administration because, you know, they was telling us some things about the 2013 contract that, you know, I thought they were telling the truth. So, of course, we fought for them to stay elected. But after the contract, you know, went through, after a lot of people voted it down, I think at the time we had about 18 supplements, uh, regional contracts throughout the UPS landscape that were forced on us. And so once that happened, I kind of took a, a step back and said, hold on a minute. Now, this is not what I thought unionism was supposed to be. I thought it was supposed to be the will of the people. So mm -hmm. if a group of people said they don't want a contract, then why are they getting it? And why are you and why are you forcing it on them? You know, we're paying our dues. A part of that that comes with our dues is our voice. If we're paying you every week and you take our our voice, are you gonna give us our dues back? Absolutely not. So that that kind of uh, you know ignited a fire in me because hey, this this just can't be unionism. This is not what we paid for. And then I saw the hurt, the pain, the you know you know people feeling disrespected throughout the workforce in our local. And so I wanted to get more involved. And so I went to our leaders and I and I and I never forget this conversation. Um, I went to the office and I asked them. I said, man, you know what happened? You know, our members are not happy. You guys lied to us. And this was what they told me. This is when I knew that something had to change. They told me 
that I need to go back, tell the membership, stop crying, pull their pants up. It is what it is. And I've said, what? <laughs> this this can't this cannot be a Teamsters union. Mm-hmm. But then I found out that went on not just in our local, but it goes on throughout just the whole landscape of Teamster locals in general. Um, mm-hmm. so we we started, we started, you know, this six two three lives matter movement. Uh, we we only had two hoodies and 12 t-shirts. And, and this was in 2014 we started doing this. And we we you know we we talked about how we needed new leadership and how we were going to do things differently. And being African American, that was that was really very tough because no, there has never been an African American leader in our local. In 101 years, there's never had there's never been a, a principal officer who was African American. Mm-hmm. So I knew that was going to be a struggle. So instead of dancing around that, you know, the issue of race, we decided to hit it head on. The name of our slate was Six Two Three Lives Matter because we knew that we needed to attach, you know, social issues along with what we were trying to do, and we knew it was going to make some people uncomfortable. Um, but we had to, instead, like I said, instead of dancing around that problem, that issue, we decided to hit it head on. Uh, we we campaigned uh, around the issue of just being something brand new, and you know, things needed to change. We can't ha- have leaders to continuously tell us that we have to take what they give us when we don't want it. We, 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 we want to be educated. We want to be able to participate and not be looked upon as a rebel rouser because we don't want to continue the same system that has benefited everybody else but the worker. Yep. And so that's how it started. That's how it started. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of a friend of mine who worked for the U.S. Postal Service, and he said he was listening to, you know, me and my friends talk and be a little bit like, I don't know, uncritically pro-union, I think. And he was like, I hated my union. They, the leadership betrayed us. They didn't listen. I had no idea what my rights were. Like, I didn't even know what I was guaranteed. And I had to sift through the contract myself and figure out what I could get. And when I asked them about it, they never advocated for me. Mm -hmm. And it just totally left a sour taste in his mouth. And he was like, I don't want to be in a union ever again. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk to us about like your take on that and union leadership's responsibility to the rank and file and what you can do if you're in a union and you're frustrated by leadership or you want reform and how you kind of took that on? Well, again, um, you, and, and this 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 is uh, a, a multifaceted answer I have to give you. Well, it's a big question, so right. that's fair. So, <laughs> so the leadership needs to know their role, but the membership has to know their role as well. What has happened nowadays, you see, is the leaders believe that they are the union. And they act as such when it's really the members' union, but they don't know that. They're not taught that. They're not inspired to feel that. Like for an example, in our in, in our UPS, you know, world, um, when you force contracts on people, not once, but twice, then what are you telling the members? You're telling them that their voice does not matter. So, like you just said, when they say, Well, my union doesn't care, they don't do anything for me. That comes from a place of of just distrust. And, you know, I've done everything you asked me to do. I voted. 
I show up to the meetings, I file grievances, and you still take my voice away from me. Now, as a leader, you have a responsibility. You do. And you have to make sure your members never go through that. Unfortunately, um, what we're faced with now is that this has continuously happened. And so what I would tell people who feel that way, do what we did. You know, start start a caucus in your in your in your local union. Uh, get some people who you trust and get and get those leaders out of office um, because they need to understand it's not their union. It's the membership's union. Um, we in, in our in our uh, constitution, it says it. It's the members who put me here and it's the members who we serve. A lot of them have forgotten that because there is no relationship with the membership. A lot of the guys in the Teamsters Union, when you, when you talk about the upper echelon of leadership, they haven't worked in over 30 some years. So they don't, they forgot how it was to load a package card, deliver a package or sword or whatever the case may be, whatever they're, where they come from, they have forgotten that. And now the membership has suffered because they forgot. But we need to, as leaders, always pump up, always uplift, always inspire, always engage and, and, and you know, just cultivate our membership so that when it comes time to vote, they'll show up. When it comes time to pick it, they'll show up. When it comes time to file grievances, they'll show up. Now, what you have now is a membership who is apathetic. They don't want to get involved. And the leaders stay in office. So it keeps going. The cycle keeps going. And the system that is should be designed to help the members, really it helps the company and it helps these leaders who've been in office for so long they don't want to do the right thing. They don't want to give up their power. So if I was any member out there, I would start now and try to get new leadership at the local level. So then you build that power on the ground up and then you can have the change that we need at the top. Yeah. And, and you know, Rich, we, we talk about this a lot. I mean, and this happens in politics and generally, and it's sort of this chicken and egg problem where, you know, so many working class people don't vote in political elections and they don't vote because they don't trust politicians. They haven't done anything for them. So totally understandable and valid. But at the same time, it's never going to change if working people don't get involved. And of course, there's other ways to get involved besides just voting. But, you know, mm -hmm. it, so it is this it, it's a tough kind of chicken or egg problem. Um, but I want to ask you next, you know, since you, you've been working at UPS um, a long time and now as a union leader, you're still intimately, you know, connected with what's going on. How would you say uh, working conditions have changed since you started there? You know, what, what has changed about the workplace at UPS since you started? I'm, I'm going to be honest. Nothing really has changed. I think it, it went the other way. Um, the UPS has gotten more dominant. They have done whatever they wanted to do and they continue to do so because again you know um the leaders and the members cannot get on the same page the, the working conditions have not gotten better even even through this covid uh, 19 situation we had to fight this company to do the right thing and getting our members ppe we had to do so much fighting and we try to do it the right way i mean i i, I sent the company pictures and videos of of the working conditions um, through COVID. I mean, this stuff shouldn't even been happen anyway, but it definitely cannot happen during what we're going through with this pandemic. 
You, you want clean facilities. You want your members to come in and be able to work safe. You know, follow the guidelines. You know, do all the things that you're supposed to do. But again, it, it's it's profit over people. We're we're disposable and not essential. And you know, again, until all of us get on the same page, fight this company, then the U the UPS machine will keep running. They're going to keep trampling over us until until we make them do so. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, ahead, I wanted Ariella. to ask you about those safety issues because when I was looking at you know workplace surveillance for my segment. There was a bunch of things that they were saying, oh, we need this in the UPS trucks because it's a safety issue. We need to have cameras on our people all the time, right? But you uh, had shown us a clip. Maybe we can roll this, Kale, from the Hill. Um, you were on the Hill in March talking about workplace conditions during COVID, and they were despicable, you know, dirty facilities. Can we roll that, Kale? Um, the facilities are still not... Um, properly cleaned. Um, there's no social distancing like the CDC is, is asking us to do. Um, it's, it's it's a mess. It's a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and we're throwing some some pictures up on the screen right now so our audience can see that you shared with us. We're looking at, I think, the inside of a truck right now that's grimy. We're looking at, right. uh, you know, package facility. You tell us what we're looking at here. Litter, trash, dirt. This is a, a right. bathroom that's filthy and disgusting. I know you also said in a video, of course, we're all being told to wash our hands all the time. Bathroom that the water doesn't even work. Um, toilets hanging off the wall. Just just talk specifically about the sort of conditions that your members and you are facing. When you have the, um, the toilet hanging on the ground and no running water and dirt everywhere and trash everywhere, especially when the CDC has asked constantly to make sure these things aren't happening. Um, it's a slap in the work of face. You put, we're already putting our life on the line because we have families too. And then when you come to work and the facility is like this, it's not healthy and you're anxious and you're concerned. And our members are very, 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 you know, they're anxious and they feel like they're disposable and not essential. Yeah, have things changed since March? They they've gotten they've gotten better, but I'm gonna tell you something, and I may get in trouble for it, but it's all right. Um, we really didn't really start to see a change until some of the um, UPS upper management started getting COVID. Once they started getting COVID, mm. then things started. Okay, well, we may wow. need to do some things, and, and 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 this is the thing, and this is just in everyday life. You, you, you can talk about something or this shouldn't happen. We're we going to do it this way. But until it knocks at your door, it's, until it's in your house, then you really don't care. But when it happens to you, then you want to make a change. And, and that's what happened. That And that's what happened here. Yeah. And, you know, drivers had died of COVID and UPS is making money hand over fist right now huh. because you can't go in the store. People rely on this, you know, and people can cheer essential workers all they want, but if they're not aware of how to advocate for working conditions, hazard pay, things that actually improve people's lives and safety, the cheers aren't worth that much. I also I wanted to ask you about the um, local uh, 623 coronavirus tracker. Um, 
you had said, so here's a, here's a uh, clip from the website where you've got numbers for, it looks like each facility and in the local and people right. can keep track of positive cases. Um, in March, when you were on the Hill, you were talking about how management wouldn't tell you COVID cases and said it was a HIPAA violation. Could we roll that clip as well, Kale? We on the front line, we putting our life on the line. The, the, the CEO of this company is now putting his life on the line. It's the members. So, um, and their lives have changed because now they're very, very nervous. I mean, there's a lot of rumors going on in our, in our facilities now about um, certain things going on as far as this, the, you know, does any member have it? Um, what's going on? And I, I get the whole HIPAA thing, I do. But when it comes to stuff like this, we should know um, what's going on. If, if a member is being quarantined, if it's a possibility they, sh they do have it, then the company needs to reach out to us and let us know, hey, listen, um, we have a situation here. We may need to investigate it. Uh, let your members know so we can calm their nerves because you don't want to panic. You don't want to uproar. And when you, uh, you know, when you withhold information, you're going to create that panic. And we don't want that right now. So they don't have, you know, issues with violating worker privacy when they're putting cameras in your trucks, right? Or tracking every single move you make. But if it comes to saying, um, you know, a member, a worker in this facility, don't have to name them, right. has COVID, they wouldn't tell you? They still don't tell us the actual person, which is fine, but we had yep. to go through so, so many changes to get this information. I mean, at one point, they wouldn't tell me anything um we had to keep pushing and 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 pushing and pushing pushing file grievances until now they tell me you know hey hooker we have um you know a person on the night sword at oregon avenue which is one of our buildings you know mm -hmm. in the city or they would tell me hey we have two um cases that just popped up on this date working on the uh, twilight ramp but we had to go through so much just to get that out uh, of uh, of them and like you said you they can they can you know put cameras in the in the truck and they got all these devices that 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 tells them when you got your seatbelt off and how many times you back the car up and all this other kind of stuff but they won't give us what we need to just calm our members nerves give them some sort of peace of mind during this pandemic mm -hmm. that's all we want that's all we ever wanted you know, these people are already working longer hours, putting their life on the line. Just give them some peace, just a little bit of peace. So who created the uh, coronavirus tracker at that at your local? So myself and our director of operations, Dino Gustala, he uh, we worked together and we we put every every time the labor department from the company contacts me with a case. I get it and I let our, you know, our e-boy know. Then I will also let our um, our membership know because we have a Facebook page um, called 623 Lives Matter. And we also have the locals Facebook page. Um, so whatever information we get, we, we, we put it on a website. We track each case so members will know, hey man, you know, on this date, you know, we had three new cases. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish we could give them more as far as the actual area. So instead of just saying the night sort at the airport building had two cases, 
I would like to be able to tell them, hey, small sword area mm -hmm. on the, the twilight shift had three new cases on this date. Mm -hmm. That's the information that we want. But again, UPS is so afraid of creating a panic. They, they won't, they won't let me know that because I even had reached out to um, another local um, and I asked them how they were doing it. And they told me, Hey, they let us know the area and everything. So I mm -hmm. said, okay, cool. I finally got the company. There's no way they can get out of this. So I present the information to the company and they tell me, well, that facility is so massive. No one would even know who it is because there's so many people in that area. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but this, wow. this is the company we're dealing with. This is who they are. Yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable. Uh, I want to go back actually to, you touched a little bit on your union elections, um, but I want to go back to it. So the first time you ran, you lost by, what was it, 27? 30, 37 votes. Yeah. Which, um, but you know what? But you know what, man? I'm, I'm, I'm glad we lost. I'm actually excited that we did because the stuff that we did not do during that election, as far as uh, raising campaign funds and uh, creating, you know, like a, a, a website to, to give our members some information about us, mm -hmm. um, you know, what we really did was just focus a lot on the grassroots organizing part. But Paul and Ariel, you know, there's more to it than that. You do have to have funds. You do have to have, you know, a lot more pieces to connect and get you over the top. So uh, at that time, it was three slates running. And um, we lost by, by 37 slate votes. And but when you calculate the votes from the opposing slate from the previous administration, um, if you look at that, that number was greater than the number they got but because of how the votes fell they were able to get back in office which lets me know mm. that even though they won the members still wanted to change right mm -hmm. right so what we did was we didn't stop we we did not stop we lost 537 votes took it on the chin shed a little tear got back <laughs> up on the horse and we kept riding so what we did was um we started you know raising some campaign funds uh we got you know, more and more aggressive in our approach. We got a a, um, a slate website that shows uh, what we plan on doing if we got elected, far as shop stewards tools, um, how to file a grievance, um, things like that. But we also changed um, the bylaws in our local because previous, before this um, 2018, well, even 2013 to 2018, we did not know what was going on in our contract. I mean, we, we just didn't know. The leaders would go to the table, they didn't tell us anything. And then when they did tell us something, we didn't like it, they had no explanation for what happened. Like, what's, mm -hmm. what's going on here? Especially when I vote the contract down, and then you tell me, oh, who cares? And then I don't know what's going on. So you mm -hmm. say, you, so you know what we did? So after we lost, we um, changed the, the uh, bylaws in our local. So now, whenever there's a contract being negotiated, we have to have rank and file members along with the e-board to negotiate that contract. So there's no more, well, you don't know what's going on. Uh, we don't know what's happening because we organized our campaign around transparency, 
education, getting our members more involved, you know, and we wanted to keep pushing it out there. So um, one, of, one of the things I found out is that the more transparent, transparent you are, you start to gain people trust. And we had to gain a lot of people trust because for the last 16, almost 20 years, we've had the same leadership or some mm-hmm. sort of the same people mm-hmm. that made it up. And so they built these relationships with our members. You know, they, they didn't know us. They knew us, but it was like, well, even though Hooker, you guys are saying the right thing, but you have no experience. You, right. We, we just don't know. You know, and then it was the whole race thing. That was a big issue for a lot of people. So we, yeah. had, a, we had to overtake that. So what we tried to do is take everything negatively that people would use against us to turn it to a, po- to a positive. For example, there's a stereotype that, you know, black people, all they care about is money and cars. So one of the first mm-hmm. things we did when we got elected was, hey, I'm going to take a pay cut and I don't want the car. So we took that away from them. So you can't use that now. Um, well, Hooker, um, you don't have the experience to negotiate contracts, whatever. Well, listen, the people that have been here forever, what did they do for you? You voted no and they gave you the contract anyway. Mm-hmm. So what, what have you got to lose? So now we just started focusing on what we could do better, better communication. We already proved that to you because there's a website that shows you how to file grievances, how, you know, when the meeting is going to be. Um, we just kept being at the gates constantly, you know, trying to get our people involved. Um, so another thing they was concerned about was, you know, whether I going to spend all the money, which is another stereotype, you know, black <laughs> people don't know how to manage money. So each, each one of our meetings, the money keeps growing. It keeps growing and keeps growing. So now they can't use that against us. So we we try to focus on taking everything that people had against us away from them and show them that we're going to do the job, which we are, and that now you can start worrying about what we're not going to do, and let's focus on fighting the company. Let's focus on getting the right leadership in the international level. Let's focus on picketing and organizing and, and, and grievance procedure. And, you know, let's focus on that. Let's not focus on the color of the leader. Let's not focus on, you know, he, the money and all this. Let's focus on fighting the company. Right. I know how you do, Richard. You go, you get the box seats at the Vikings games and the Duke <laughs> games with the union dudes. <laughs> right. Um, so it's been, it's hard to believe, but it's been a little bit over a year since you've won yeah. that election. And so, you know, I think our viewers would be interested to hear, you know, what it's like to be in an office, that transition. Like, what are some of the challenges you face going from a regular filer, shop steward to, you know, elected, elected leader? It's, you know, the, the only part that I hate about this job, and Paul, you know what I'm going right. to say. Right, I know. It's the politics of it, dude. I cannot stand the politics of the job I, I you know and even though i know it's um, a necessary part of the job but as a ranking file member i was naive um i didn't really know that how politics play a part in some of the decision makings that i even have to make because even now i'm i'm, I'm forced i'm i'm forced to to make a decision uh, to go against my morality, my spirituality, integrity, and character 
to vote for someone who I, I, I just can't, I can't vote for. But what's to say if I don't, then my members are going to suffer. Mm. And that's, and that's the kind of decisions that I don't want to make, you know, but, you know, I'm forced to make those decisions because I don't want my people to be left out because of knowing the candidates that we have running and knowing, you know, their past history and what they've done to our union, we're forced to make these decisions, but how is it going to play out for my members? Because I know this person is not going to do what he says he's going to do. And he's have, and they have shown this through years and years and years. Um, it's, it's the politic part of the job. I've been fighting a company for a long, long time. That came natural. Uh, I've always cared about people um, from growing up. That's just part of who I am. I try to do the right thing all the time, no matter if it's political or not. So I try to keep my spirituality, my morality, my integrity and character um, to make it line up with what I, where I'm trying to take the local to. You know what I mean? Because I get mm -hmm. I, I, some of my members, they always bust on me a lot of times because I remember, I'll never forget when we won the election, they were telling me that we was going to have a choir uh, at the union hall. Be <laughs> I mean, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know but. What I mean? Yeah. But, Wait, what what yeah. were they gonna sing though? <laughs> you gotta yeah. pick the you the, gotta uh, pick the right song. You gotta pick the right role, you gotta pick the right him. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some you know, but but I, I, I just I just try to make sure that everything I am internally, um, it comes out in the job that I try to do for the membership. I don't ever want them to question um where I'm trying to take the local, you know, and that and that's part of my upbringing. You know, coming from a church background, um, you know, to me, I'm a, uh, the, the church and the union are basically supposed to do the same thing, just mm -hmm. on two different spectrums. The church is supposed to organize more people, show them a better way of life. Same thing as a union, organize, show the, the non-union and the union a better way of life. You know, that's what we're supposed to be doing. But, you know, and I just try to entangle both of them, if, if, if mm -hmm. that's what yeah. I wanted to ask you about the way that um, you tackled issues of racism when you were running. And <laughs> you should have. Hard, you should... Man, hard tonight, man, and I'll add also, you know, oh, sorry. Ariel. If it helps, we'll sing you a hymn after. Come from a long line of gospel singers. I have a lot. My family's from Virginia. Okay, there's okay. A, there's a lot of them in there. So okay. me I'll and Paul sing, can I'll work sing, on uh, something. Harmony. Um, okay. But, uh, <laughs> but and that's I mean to follow up if I could. You know, Dino, the director of operations, told me an interesting story. You know, in terms of when you're in office, how to deal with this. And he was saying, you know, on a shop steward's call. Long story short, one of these workers that essentially did not like you because you were black, you know, did not want to vote for you, you know, was really dead set against you. But then, you know, you've been in leadership a while and they spoke up on the call and they said, you know, I didn't like Richard, but, you know, he's turned this union around. I have so much respect for him, you know. And to me, that's huge because there's there's a lot of discussion about, you know, how do we break down racism among people? And, you know, I more and more, I think you can try to lecture someone. You can try to mm -hmm. lecture a white person as much as possible, but like, What's so interesting about a union is like it provides a space for, you know, building trust. And like, you know, if you take care of that person's interests, you might not every right. time, but you might be able to start moving like that shop steward. 
I, I have a feeling that a year of your leadership, he probably has better, slightly less racist views, at least today than a slightly year ago. Less. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, America in general was founded on racism. You know, man, let's just be truthful. I mean, it was founded on race. You know, it's it just what it is. So when we were when we ran the first time in 2016, I, and I'll never forget this. I had a lady who I was a shop store over. She called me and said, hey, Hooker, I just want to know um, if you get elected. Now, this was in 2016. If you get elected, are you going to fight for white people like you do black people? Man, <laughs> that, that hurt. Mm -hmm. because this was a member who job I've saved. Um, you know, fought for, make sure she got her grievances paid out. And she was a white member. And but for her to ask me that after all I've done for her, man, it hurt. And it mm -hmm. bothered me. That, and that's when I knew that we were going to lose the election the first time because race was such a just big, big issue. And then when you um talk about the name of our slate, 62D Lives Matter. Man, you know, a lot of people were they were not happy. And and that probably cost us a lot of votes because they just cannot get over that race barrier. Even though mm -hmm. our local membership is like 70% black and brown people. Mm -hmm. right? But we don't vote. We don't vote. And that and that's a problem. Um, just in general. But race, race. It's, it's race is not just in you know local six two three. It's, it's just in and from what I see, especially in a leadership position, um, it's just in the teamsters in general. If you look mm -hmm. at the representation of the uh, international leadership, we only have one black male, one and one woman. But when you look at the workers, man, you're talking about two thirds to seven percent of the teamsters are black and brown people. But it's not reflective in our leadership. So what does that tell mm -hmm. you? There's a big problem. Now, they don't want to address it, but it is a problem. And even, even in our current situation, when we're talking about, um, you know, this international election this year, uh, you know, um, we have both slates are running that are talking about diversity um, because they see what's going on in our country. You know, everything's changing. We have our first African-American um vice president and female mm -hmm. you know and we also have i believe um one of the, the joint chiefs or one of the, the secretaries of defense i believe um they're black so all mm -hmm. these things are changing and i think the teams just want to change with it but they don't know how to you know they don't they don't know what to do they don't know how to do it and when you look at what's happening um the same system and, and i'll just say this the same system that keeps these guys in office on the international level was not designed for someone like me to get up to that level. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? It's not because you have to go through so many changes. They're, they're like for example, when I joined council, I think there's only three African American uh, principal officers, but we have over 100,000 um, members in our PA conference. Mm -hmm. but we only got three. African-American principal officers. And, and, and one of them is a woman. There's only one African-American. And when you talk about some of the things that go on in the international level, I don't think that if an African-American leader 
were to do some of the things that our white counterparts have done as far as leadership, mm-hmm. we would not be given a chance like some of these guys are given a chance now. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I was negotiating the 2013 contract or the 2018 contract, I can guarantee you right now, live on this show, that they would probably try to kick me out of the Teamsters Union. Mm-hmm. But we have someone who doesn't look like me who's done these things and mm-hmm. worse, but they're telling us that we got to vote for them. You That's see, not- you know, <laughs> historically, it's always been the case that people use race and racism to make people, um, to divide people from acting solidaristically in their own interests. Because right now you have a time where, you know, workers are being put through the ringer in jobs that are already incredibly physically demanding. Like your job is very, very hard physically. Um, Most people's jobs in your union are extremely difficult physically. They take a huge toll. And then you add the pandemic on top of it and your interests are the same. Right, what you're fighting against at work is the same conditions, but race can be used to just split people up. That woman saying, "Oh, you know, are you going to fight for for white people? What are you going to write a separate contract for white people?" Like, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. your, your fight is the same fight. Your contract is the same contract, but it's so embedded in people's heads, and it it makes you know what you're doing all the more important. I think. Right. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, And to look at the national level, I mean, these next few years are going to be very important. I mean, for the labor movement, for the country, for the Teamsters. Um, What do you think should be like the priorities for the Teamsters in the next few years, just at the national level in general? You know, what? Man. um, Small question. Well, this year, uh, we have an important election coming up for um, new international presidency. Um, General President Hoffa is retiring. And so we're going to have a uh, a new leadership. And, and what I'm hoping is that people just vote. Um, I wish we had. I wish we had some better people to choose from. And, and I'm not trying to knock anybody, but. To me, I, I was reading a quote earlier that kind of really makes this thing sting a little bit. It was saying that um, that you shouldn't go to the people that that harm you shouldn't you shouldn't go to the, the feet of the people that put you in a situation that you're currently in, and we are facing that right now as Teamsters. Um, we we are forced to vote for people who are the sole responsible entity and people on why we are in the situation we're in. You took our votes away. You bully us. You intimidate us. The company does what they want to do. And now we have to try to vote for you. How, How do we do that? But I will say this. Outside of the Teamsters, what we need to do is Every local, every union, we need to come together and just educate each other on the importance of voting and getting our members involved. Because um, I would hate for uh, whoever the next Teamster president is to go to Joe Biden or, or to someone and say, hey, my members need this. And then that elected governmental official look at the voting and say, well, I hear what you're saying, 
but your members are not speaking the same language because they didn't vote. Um, that's that's my biggest thing. I hope throughout these next two three years that whoever wins this election really will put something in place where we educate and engage our members constantly on their rights, um, not just contractual rights, but their rights as just being union members. How to file a grievance, you know, what to do when um, there's a picket, you know, come out to the union meetings, you know, do some things that get them more involved. Show them that America's greatest resource is the, is, is the workers. It's not anything else. I mean, look at what just happened this, this over this past two years. If it wasn't for the workers through this COVID-19 situation, America would be in shambles right now. Everybody knows. But I think our leaders, they have to make sure that our um, members understand that, that they are the sole reason why, number one, America's still running. Number two, they're the sole reason why the leadership is, you know, in the position that they are. But we have to make sure that our members understand that inspire them to want to be engaged. We can't bully them and intimidate them and force contracts on them and, you know, birate them because they don't agree with you politically. No, that's not how you do this thing. We need to all come together and fight together against these companies. I mean, look what's going on down here in Bessemer and in, 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 the, in the land of Dixon. Right. You know, right to work state. These mm -hmm. guys are coming together to try to fight against a huge, major corporation. Now, what about the union members? What are we going to do? Now it's our time to respond. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? Well, how are we going to attack these anti-labor people and this anti-labor legislation? What are we going to do? What are we going to do when our, when our labor leaders don't do what they're supposed to do? Are we just going to say, oh, well, this, I told you? Now we got to mm -hmm. stand up like these guys do, doing now here. We got to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. We got to, uh, you know, um, you know, organize a, a bus boycott. Whatever we got to do, like this movement is down here, we got to translate that into what we need to do as far as our unions. We have to. Yeah, that's right. Um, and to go back, you know, to Philly, you talk a lot about, you know, the community of labor, as you call oh, yeah. it, that we've yeah. built in Philly or we're, we're trying to build. I mean, could you expand more on that? I mean, what, what does that mean to you, this community of labor? Well, I'm going to tell you how that started, Paul, and you probably don't even know this. So when we ran the first time, right, in 2016, one of um, one of our shops to told me, he said, Hooker, you guys are not going to win against the previous administration with just seven people. And, you know, I didn't quite under understand what he was talking about. But then when I started thinking about it, I knew he was just talking about the people in the local. But what I wanted to do is expand that and get everybody in Philadelphia involved and just everything that goes on when it comes to labor in our city. You know, when you have a group like what we did in our local, how about reaching out to a Paul Prescott or a Dino or, or just everybody to come on out and just, you know, fight the company. I mean, you, you were there, right. you know? When we had that contract campaign, I think that's when how that, we met, right? Right, exactly. Right, <laughs> and when and when that um the division manager came out there, start talking all that noise, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't just me, right? It wasn't just teamsters. It was teachers. It was teamsters. It was IIC workers. It was you know just all kind of people. So he wasn't just fighting me, or just talking noise of me. He had everybody else that he had to deal with 
you know, and, and that was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. thing. Then. And that's that, and that's what I mean by the community of labor. What we're trying to be. we have to build that everywhere in every city, every state. We have to build that because all of us are fighting the same fighting the same battle. I mean, the PFT, they're trying to put window fans and right. <laughs> the windows and it's like negative 10 degrees outside. Mm, right. Yeah, fan. that is a fan that will freeze, right? The wind turbines <laughs> are fine, but right. you can't be putting that in a snowstorm. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. and they want our kids to come to school in this. Right. Yeah. And you know, solid, and like I know solidarity, of course, like that is the cliche of all cliches, but like it really is the basis of how we win. It's not just like a warm, fuzzy, moral thing. I mean, it kind of is. It is morally right but also you know like we really just can't win without solidarity like you can't it's mm-hmm. a fact you, you know that's one of the nice you know lessons i didn't grow up going to church uh, uh as often as my grandma would have liked but <laughs> when i was with her i did have to go to church and you know you see what you see on the ground what solidarity can look like in those places when they say this person is struggling this person is suffering that's shared by everybody. Right. Everybody feels that you have a responsibility to your community. You know, they follow the teachings of Jesus, protecting and working for the sick and poor, right? Not like, you know, fake Christianity profiteering. And I think drawing that into the left is really important because people want that to be renewed, even if they're not religious, they want that renewed sense of community, of responsibility, of shouldering the the burden together. And we live in a country that just, you know, constantly tells you you're in this alone. It's like what you said leadership told you to say, just suck it up. You don't like the contract, suck it up. You know, you deal with it. You deal with it by yourself. Even though the whole basis of that process is collective action. Exactly. And it cannot be undermined. Like, it is what makes us human beings. We wouldn't survive without each other. It might be warm and fuzzy, but that's good. It's warm and fuzzy because like the chemicals that make you feel love are, are good, you know? <laughs> we need more of that stuff. On that note, which, you know, maybe it's because it was Valentine's Day. I'm getting right. all sappy. <laughs> but I wanted to talk to you about, you know, union or the labor community in Philly in general getting involved in fights outside of just labor, like um, fighting for local issues or highlighting um, different policies. Paul had said you were fighting locally for Medicare for all. Can you talk about getting involved outside of the workplace? Oh, man, listen, I got to tell you um, one of the main reasons why this Medicare for all, I'm telling you, Whatever we got to do to get this thing done, it has to. And and I just, I got to tell you this story. I don't know if I got time, but I, I got to tell you this. You got so, time. Yeah. So um, around last year when we first got elected, right, we had one of our members. She has lupus. And that is a really hard thing to me because my mom passed away from lupus when I was mm-hmm. five years old. So she has lupus. and. She got fired. She got terminated. And when she got terminated, she lost all of her medical benefits. Mm -hmm. Now, she was on the list to get a kidney because I don't know if you guys are familiar with the the lupus disease. It just 
tears your internal yeah. organs up. And yeah. it was really killing her her kidney. She she was on the list to get a new one so she could continue to live, you know, uh in, in somewhat of a normal way. Mm-hmm. Um, she lost the benefits though. So when it came time for her to get that kidney, she couldn't get it. She couldn't get it because the company had control of her medical her medical benefits, which mm-hmm. means in this instance. They had control where she lives mm-hmm. or dies. Mm-hmm. Man, that bothered me so bad. And it still bothers me now because even though she's back to work and she's doing a lot better, but man, just think about just think about that. Why would we give a company like UPS that kind of power? Mm-hmm. UPS is one of the worst companies. I'm telling you, they when you they can change the narrative and they'll tell you, man, these guys make the most money. They do this, they do that. But there is a dark side to UPS that people just do not know. Mm-hmm. And if it ever gets out, man, UPS will be in trouble. They would. They would really be in trouble because they are one of the most monstrous, demeaning, um, harassing, intimidating companies that you can ever work for. And, mm-hmm. and they just don't care. And when they know they have you, like they had my one of my members, Mm-hmm. She she was at their mercy. I had to fight with them to, to put the, her back to work. It took me about two months, two, three months to get her back to work. And, yeah. and, and, and it, it wouldn't even have to be that way. But it's just who they are. Mm-hmm. It's just who they yeah. are. No, and that so- cuts to why why people are fighting it. Because they do want to be able to control whether you live or die. And they right. don't want it to be a right, even though, you know, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They want it to be another way to blackmail you into breaking your body for them to profit off of. Exactly. And and whatever we got to do, I mean, I know some of the arguments over there are going to raise your taxes. They're going to do this. Again, I remember I, I, we, we talked about this earlier. It's a whole lot different. When it's not in your house, it's a whole lot right. different. Mm-hmm. You have to sit there. I, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, if, if it was one of these people who talk all oh, my taxes, let it be their wife. Let it be mm-hmm. them. And see how how fast they change. I'm telling you, that was one of the worst experiences I had in my first couple months hmm. um, on the job because they UPS had her life in their hand, and they didn't care. Man, they did not care. It could have been resolved easily. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, this, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I mean, taxes, co-pays, deductibles, I mean, shit, it's still money coming out of your pocket, you know, whatever you want to <laughs> yeah. call it, it, it's still money. So, um, and maybe this will be our final question, but this, you know, talking about Medicare for all, how to get it. I mean, this kind of immediately puts us into the question of politics. And I know Richard, you hate, you claim you hate <laughs> politics. I still don't believe you do. What? I mean, you're on Jacobin after all. What? I think we just have different definitions of politics. Yeah, I, I think like I'm, fighting I'm, for I'm Medicare just, for all is politics. You know, yeah, I, mean? I get that, but I just hate this whole. Well, you know what? I right. Hate. So my well, my question is, you know, unions can't really avoid politics. You know, and I'm not just talking about internal union politics, but like legislative politics. So you know. What are your thoughts? How should unions approach electoral politics? Like, do you think, you know, should unions be running more, you know, union members as candidates, true labor candidates? Uh, what kind of candidates should unions be supporting? 
you know, just how should labor approach electoral politics to get better outcomes for working people? Well, I, I think first what we need to do, we need to educate our members on the candidates that are running, number one, and how will they benefit what we want as union members. Um, I think that's what we, it starts with education. We have to let our members know what each candidate stands for and what they're going to do for us. And then next, we need to hold them accountable. Um, we need to hold them accountable for what they are promising our members. Again, we need to educate our members on that as well. Um, but I, I would like to see, um, I wish, we got to get out of this Republican Democrat stuff and, and, and have a workers party. I, I think we need to have people who are um, for the workers, by the workers, with the workers, not just in name, you know, not just in name only, but people who came up through the ranks, worked their way to get there. I would love to see more of those people being involved in politics because it's, it's, it's easy to talk about it if you haven't lived through it. I would trust someone who had to deal with a, uh, you know, a bully boss, fight his way up, you know, lead some pickets, you know, uh, lead some strikes. That's the kind of person I want to vote for when it comes to like, you know, uh, mm. federal government, state government, city government, because I know they know the struggle. They know the struggle of getting up four o'clock in the morning, not coming back home until, you know, four o'clock at night because you had to do 12 hours shift. You had to deal with a boss who didn't care. Um, you're fighting for people's rights. That's the kind of person who I would like to make decisions for me and my family, because that's mm. where me and my family have come from. We come from that. We're getting up four o'clock in the morning, not coming home till four o'clock at night, dealing with a, 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 a crazy boss and all this other kind of stuff. I would like to see more of those people in politics because I know I would be able to have that relationship, uh, a representational relationship, because they've been through the same things I've been through. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so I would love to see those kind of people. So I get what I'm hearing, I think, is Richard Hooker, president 2024. <laughs> oh, no. You know, that's what I'm hearing. But that is a much me. better for representation than like, why doesn't Oprah run for president? <laughs> like, well, maybe no. Oprah was working class at one point in her life, years and years before she yeah. had billions of dollars. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I want to see. Represent people who had like blue collar, difficult jobs. Exactly. You know, and to piggyback, I want to piggyback on something you said about your grandmother. Mm -hmm. Now, um, now, to go back and check this out. I'm, I'm gonna drop something on you. Um, if you go back, Abram, Abraham, not Abraham, excuse me, Moses, mm -hmm. and his brother Aaron, they were the first two union organizers. Um, <laughs> and Egypt was the representation of the company. And look how they had to organize them guys and get them out. It's the mm -hmm. same thing. I'm telling y'all, man. The, yeah. the church and the union are the same. I'm telling y'all, man. Well, well, I'm gonna make my grandma watch this because she usually just watches like the gospel channel. But right. I think she'll <laughs> like this episode. She's a oh, union. Yeah. She's union strong. She's a nurse, a pediatric okay, awesome. nurse, awesome. and she awesome. told me that you know there might have been fights over if the black nurses were smart enough to perform different things in the hospital, but there was no race on the picket line. She said. She said out there, everybody was fighting for the same thing. And you know what? I And that's the part of politics I wish that was more prevalent. You know what I mean? Listen, I know I don't agree. Like right now in the Teamsters, man, I I do not agree with, where, with what's going on when it comes to this international election. And I'm just not going to, no matter what people say or do. Mm -hmm. I, just, I, I just have a hard time voting for someone who has been responsible 
for a lot of our issues. I, I, you, you're going to have to try to make me understand that. I, I just can't do it. But when it comes time to fight the company, go on strike, pick it, I'm there. I'm there. Yep. I'm, I'm going to be there. Yeah. And I can attest. I mean, I feel like I could call Richard up 3 a.m. There's, there. there's two workers on a picket and he'll be there. I'm going to be the third one on the picket. Right. All right. Yeah. Um, this is great, but I think unfortunately uh, we might have to end it there. But this was so great talking to you, Richard. Thanks yeah, so much thank, for you. thank you. We got to let you get back to your vacation. Oh, that's all good. Hey, I've been working since I got here. It's all right. Right. <laughs> But all right, brother. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm, I'll, yes. I'll be on a picket soon, probably though. So, oh yeah, you know, speaking of that, we're going to have two coming up real, real soon. I'll tell you more about them. Okay. Yeah. Great. We can announce okay. it on the show. I'm sure there okay. there might yeah. be some Philly Philly uh, audience members that would love to help out. Awesome, awesome. We, I love it already. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Richard. All right. Thank have a good you. One. Thank you, guys. Well, I mean, I'm going to get him to run for president in 2024. <laughs> it's a long process, and I'm starting early. His I hate politics thing is really going to go over well, for real. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's what people want to hear. They're like, me too, finally. Right. Yeah, and you know, and it's, well, it's interesting I would say that we always get in back and forth on this. And I hear this a lot in the workplace. You know, I think a lot of people who aren't obsessed with politics like us, what that means, politics means like, you know, workplace drama. Mm-hmm. You know, like horse trading. Right. Yeah. And so I understand, you know, and I think our conception is like, no, I mean, you're fighting for a union that's politics, Medicare for mm-hmm. all, you know, but, you know, he doesn't as as he shouldn't like the, the horse trading and the pettiness of, of that kind of politics. Yeah. And it's fair that politics has a bad name. I mean, when people say, oh, I'm not really a political person, that makes sense to me. Like you after a while, you can't keep that level of engagement, especially in a system that's so cynical and, right. you know, th- the rhetoric becomes so extreme. But I think what he's doing is closer to politics than this, than what I'm doing. Right. right. <laughs> like, yeah. That is really building power on the ground. That is right. actually changing people's lives and changing their communities. And changing the the might of capital. You might be up against, you know, a, a big company, but when you're fighting it, that's politics to me, more than me right. talking on the Jacobin show. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of that, uh, make sure you keep watching. So uh, we're going to start our, our Labor Paul segment. Um, and just for those of you that don't know, you know, at the end of every episode, um, if you submit your questions, um, anything regarding labor, you know, could be labor history, uh, concrete questions about strategy, anything. Um, I will do my best to answer them in the next episode. I'll have a good two weeks to look up, make sure I kind of know what I'm talking about. So feel free to be submitting them now in the chat. Um, but Ariella, if you have you have some uh, questions to you. Yeah, let me read some Labor Paul questions. I'm sorry I don't have who they're from, but if they're from you, you know who you are. All right. As a rank and file organizer, how much energy do you put towards internal union politics at the regional, state, national level? Is it useful to regularly use resolutions from locals to conventions, how much effort do you put into state slash national union elections? That's a big question. Right. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I, th- I think it's helpful to remember that it all starts at home. And you first have to be concerned with organizing and consolidating your base in your own union local and your own workplace. And 
that's where everything starts and you branch out from there. And I think looking at the Chicago Teachers Union is a is instructive for this. So, you know, over 10 years ago, members in that union started a caucus. They won leadership. They started reforming the union. They won some high profile strikes over the years that made gains for the membership. And since then, CTU has been able to heavily influence national AFT, American Federation of Teachers, and inspire a lot of other locals in the country to follow their path. But it all started with their ability to make gains in their own local. And so if you don't have much power or influence, when I say you, it doesn't come down to one union activist, but like as a local, you don't have, have powerful influence at the local level. You won't be able to really do much at the national level. And so as far as um, union elections, they usually happen either for your local's leadership or at the national level, not necessarily regionally. Um, but I think these are important to engage in, especially if there is something at stake and there is a good slate or candidate running that you think can positively impact the direction of the union. And just like political elections, union elections are a chance to highlight certain issues and talk with members about the strategic direction the union can go in. And um, I'll highlight an example that we actually didn't get to talk about with Richard. But, you know, in 1991, uh, Ron Carey was elected national president of the Teamsters. And um, it was partly because of his leadership and his slate that the successful 1997 UPS strike happened, uh, which is one of, I mean, you look at the last 30 years, probably one of the best examples of a successful national private sector strike in this country. So they, they do have real consequences. Um, and then finally, I think about the resolutions. Um, also a really good question I think they're good as an organizing tool to raise issues and get institutional backing for projects you want to do. So, but I think you should be careful about what um, Mark Dudzik from the Labor Campaign for Single Payer calls a resolutionary politics. Because at the end of the day, a resolution is really just a piece of paper. And so the important part is the follow through to turn the resolution into a reality. But they are important for generating discussion among the membership about important issues. And if it passes, now you have an institutional basis for getting resources from the union to, to carry out whatever that resolution is. I look flustered because I had to get my computer charger. Oh. <laughs> so I just I... ran back, but I missed your answer. So you can tell me later. Right. Um, all right. The second question, what kind of workplace has the most potential for getting organized right now during the pandemic? Um, so I think it depends on what you mean by potential. I think there are many workplaces where most workers want a union, but they may still not be powerful enough or organized to get one. But uh, as it relates to the pandemic, I think workplaces where there's a, a combination of COVID really reve revealing the great need for a union as it relates to health and safety and where there's a lot of public support. Um, so I think healthcare and especially nursing jumps out to me. And already before the pandemic, nursing was actually the fastest unionizing sector in the country. Um, and there has been even more interest among non-union nurses now with the pandemic and all that they've been put through. Um, and I think they can capitalize on the fact that they have been rightly deemed her heroes during all of this and they can get the public support. Um, and I think maybe another sector we should watch out for is um, grocery store workers. Um, Grocery stores used to be heavily unionized, but um, as all unions have declined, more and more non-union grocery stores chains have come in. Um, but they've also been part of the essential worker heroes. And I feel like, you know, many of them are realizing or um, acting on the fact that they deserve a lot more after this experience. And I think, you know, the big, I guess, elephant in the room is places like Amazon, you know, with obviously online shopping growing. Um, 
you know, but obviously they have immense obstacles against a company like Amazon. So, I mean, I'm very interested to see how things play out in, in Alabama. I think we're going to be talking about trying to organize Amazon for a very long time. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of have to see how that plays out. All right. Question number three, are there any negatives or positives of requiring workers to join a union when joining a job? Um, so no, there, there are no, no negatives. Um, uh, and this is what they call a closed shop. So that's yeah. basically once everyone in the workplace is automatically enrolled in the union and unions actually fought very hard for a closed shop, I think for obvious reasons, you know, um, workers should automatically enjoy the benefits of being in a union. Um, and so where that doesn't happen, it's called open shop. And that's what the right wing would love to happen. And, you know, it exists in the South a lot. So we should maintain closed shops. Um, I mean, here's one thing you can say about open shops. And um, a friend of mine and mentor of mine worked for years as, as a federal employee with the Social Security Administration. And he was vice president of his union local. And mm-hmm. they were actually an open shop. And the one thing it did was it forced the union leadership to constantly prove the union's worth and value to the members and constantly be in touch with them so they would voluntarily join the union. So in other words, they were kind of forced to be like, if we're gonna survive, we gotta be great organizers. So, I mean, that's one thing you can say about open shop. But the thing is, you know, good union locals can be good organizers, even if the workers are automatically enrolled in the union. So I don't think we should, that's kind of a galaxy brain take to be like, well, closed shop forces you to organize more, so we should promote closed shop. Um, You know, that's the one thing you could say, but you can be a diligent organizer in a union, even when workers are automatically enrolled. So. The short answer is that I, w- I don't really see any any downsides to uh, close shop. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, all right. Well, you should submit your hashtag labor yeah. Paul questions for the next next episode, which Paul right. will be on um, with Jen, not right. me. It's actually sadly. my birthday episode. It is. Yes. So, oh man, I'm gonna miss your birthday episode. Right, you can like crash it in the comments. (laughs) Yeah, I think I will. (laughs) I'll do tons of hashtag labor Paul questions in the comments for that one. Um, well, I think this is a good place to end. I loved talking to Richard Hooker, he was such a great guest to have. Mm -hmm. I really hope we can have him on the show again. I Um, think we should, if people, you know, our audience should start a hashtag of. 20 which were 2024 you know <laughs> get that going so it's gonna hate you me, think, yeah i was gonna say he might not come on the show that's true <laughs> yeah <laughs> instead just send him videos of yourself singing um, right gospel hymns <laughs> right yeah he might also not come on the show after that but whatever um, yeah this is a great episode uh i hope everybody out there enjoyed it and you're staying safe in the cold if you're in the parts of America that were affected by that huge storm. Yeah, for sure. Um, All right. Well, thanks, everyone, and good night. We will see you soon.